This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 628, Remembering Stan Lee with John Wright Thomas. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 628. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is a bit more of a somber episode. It's a conversation about Stanley, who recently passed away on November the 12th. Um, actually, our last non-reviews episode, episode 626, uh, featured myself and John Rhett Thomas, otherwise known as Gormu on the Marvel Masterworks Forum. Uh, we were chatting about uh, the book that uh, John had been working on, which was uh, the Stanley story for Tashin Books. Um, and then we literally recorded it uh, the morning uh, before we found out that uh, Stanley passed away later that day or at least that's when the news broke it was later that day uh so john and i got to talking with that we wanted to do another episode as a bit of a follow-up but also just a bit more of a discussion on, on stan lee uh, so john shares some of his thoughts his memories uh, of stan it's a it's an enjoyable episode even though it's obviously about very you know it's a sad subject matter we're all kind of in our own way sad that you know this this legendary comic creator who meant so much to so many different people uh has passed away so this is uh you know not uh there's some good fun stories told and uh i, I hope you'll really enjoy it I think it was a really fun conversation. Not, I, I keep using the word fun, and I don't think that's really accurate, but uh, it was an enjoyable conversation that I had with uh, with John as we reminisced and talked about the band who he actually got to know, um, you know, in a professional capacity working on this book. Uh, many of us cannot claim that level of connection to Stan, but we were fans. Um, John grew up a fan. Everyone kind of grew up a fan in their own way. I remember um, even he wasn't even writing any of the books at the time, but I remember in, the, I think, the summer of 97 or 96, um, I can't remember which, which year it was. Uh, the, uh, I think it was 97. Uh, they had a flashback month uh, at Marvel Comics, and all the books had a uh, basically had an intro with Stan. So even though I'm sure he didn't write any of them, I'm sure it was just the writers of those respective books trying to kind of ape Stan's voice, um, he was still kind of being used. He was, he was, he was a presence. Uh, I remember reading those books, and each one, you know, you had Stan greeting you and saying, you know, let's flash back to another story, and, you know, they were fun and silly, and, uh, you know, de- definitely utilized the well-known Stanley persona. Uh, and, I, I mean, that's, again, I obviously have read a lot of Stanley written material over the years and gotten to know his own personal voice but that was you know I was still younger I was probably like 13 14 years old I'd probably started to experience some of the older stories from reprints here and there which were not as prevalent as they are now um I was not exactly going out and buying masterworks at the time um but you know that I had seen him on the Marvel Marvel Action Hour uh I think he introed Fantastic Four and Iron Man the first year uh of those both both those animated series so like I knew his voice I knew who he was but then you saw him in all these different books during this flashback month. Anyways, that's a bit of an aside. I've rambled on for three minutes. Let's get right into the conversation that I have with John. But before I do, just a little bit of housekeeping. If you want to email the show, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, read and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for uh, downloading, and let's get right into the conversation about Stanley. Gormu, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Hi there. It's been, uh, this is the, the, the fastest turnaround you've ever had between appearances. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. So I guess, let, uh, how do we want to start? So, I mean, the last time we talked a lot about the 
the book you've been working on with for Tashin, um, the Stanley story. And unfortunately, the day we recorded, he actually passed away. Um, so yeah. we wanted to make sure that we did have a proper kind of conversation to kind of, you know, um, you know, in memoriam, kind of remember Stan and talk about Stan. Sure, sure. I'd, I'd love to do that. We, we did talk a little bit about him um, uh, on Monday. Um, it was Monday, right? Because all these days are just blending into each other. For sure. Right? No, it was it was Monday morning at like nine nine in the morning, yeah. and we were just chatting about you know just idly just talking about Stan and, and about the book, and honestly I had no idea what the rest of the day and the rest of the week was going to have in store. You know, it's funny. Um, you know, Stan has been a part of my life since uh, I can remember life. Uh, you know, as a you know you. Your brain starts to remember stuff, you know, around five or six, pretty pretty well. At least mine did. Uh, before that, it's real hazy. But um, from from the moment you become a consumer of the world, sort of, um, uh, you understand the world a lot better on your own. Uh, you know, and Stanley has been a part of that world, and uh, and so when we were talking Monday, that was the moment when he was no longer part of our world and we just didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And we we found out, uh, you know, very shortly after we concluded that episode, I, I had actually had to go to a doctor appointment and and interestingly you did as well. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, I was in the doctor's appointment and I didn't want to be disturbed. So I left my, uh, I put my phone and my wallet and all these things in a drawer and um, I could hear it buzzing, but uh, you know, it's just like any other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I when I finished up and I stepped out to, to, to go stand in line and sort of do the outtake outpatient type appointment for my next uh, visit, uh, I looked down at my phone and there was um, a text saying, "You know, I'm so sorry," and then there was another text saying, "You know." I can't believe this has happened. And I'm like, what, what's going on? <laughs> and then finally I got one that was explicit and it was from, uh, it was from my, uh, my editor at Toshin. Uh, she let me know that Stan had passed and she would have more info when, uh, when that information came. And I was just heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken. And I was, I was very upset and I was standing there just sort of like, going through the motions in this line and it it just I just I just couldn't believe it and so uh, yeah so that was my Monday how was your doctor appointment Um, so, so I, I have medical acupuncture I do every week. So it was like I was completely out, and like so I, I'm always a little groggy afterwards. So I go and check my phone, and yeah, like my wife and uh, one of my best friends had both texted me like the news story, and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like I was almost I was almost not really awake yet, and it was it was just very surreal. Um, yeah. And again, because we had just talked extensively about it, that's what made it feel so much weirder. Um, yeah. Because if it had been any other day and we hadn't had that conversation, like it would have been still like a hard thing to hear. Because obviously, like right. it's the impact that he's had on the industry is insane and on all of our lives because we're all comic book fans. Um, but yeah, no, just something extra kind of weird about it because we had spent so much time talking about it, and then it kind of kind of oddly tinged listening back to our our discussion. Like it was weird to listen to it, not us not knowing what had just happened. Yeah, it was very odd. I, I listened to it today and. And it was definitely surreal for me. And uh, it was a good podcast. I thought it was fun, and we had a good time talking. And uh, 
and I got to talk about the Stanley story, the Tashin book uh, that I worked on, and and uh, relive a little of that. And you know, and in that moment, Stan was still with us. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I've known for a while Stan had been ailing. Um, I think, you know, I think uh, I had known better than most actually about that. Um, and uh, but I just took it for granted that Stan would stick around for a while and maybe even rebound, you know, that, uh, maybe this was just a temporary malaise and, uh, and he would find a second wind and he'd bounce back and, you know, be in a, be, be on a film set shooting another cameo. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just sort of was in the back of my head. I, I just have, I just have imagined that Stan would live to be 100. Um, and I think a lot of people did. Um, he would live to be a healthy 100 mm-hmm. and uh, it just wasn't in the cards and I'm, I'm sad about that. So uh, we we now have to speak about him in the past tense, and that's just a real drag. Yeah, it's weird. I, it, Marvel put up um, a little kind of five-minute tribute video, and I was watching it, and my son kind of walks up, and he's like, who's that? And I was like, that's Stan Lee. And I'm like, that's so weird that, like, you know, that's not a world, like, he's not going to grow up in the same kind of knowing that this guy's around. Like, whereas when I right. was when I was growing up, everyone kind of, had a sense of who Stan was, and then again, when the movies came out and he started making cameos everywhere, like, even my parents, who are not comic book people whatsoever, they're always looking for his cameo in, in the next comic book movie, and, like, that's, it's weird that that kind of sense isn't going to be there, especially, for, again, for my son, who's going to grow up in this kind of, I mean, he's five, but, I mean, it's kind of a Stanley-less world in terms of his actual physical presence, but obviously his work lives on uh, in many different ways. Right. You know, it's funny, um, as comic book fans, um, particularly Marvel fans um, and comic book fans in general, um, you know, the vast majority of us have reviewed Stan for forever. Uh, Stan has been a part of our lives and we, we just, we all have a good feeling when we think of him. Um, and, uh, and that has become a cultural phenomenon now. It's something that we have now shared with uh, literally uh, hundreds of millions of people around the world. Hmm have bought into Stan in the same way. And it's just an interesting phenomenon of how that happened. Obviously, we uh, all came to value the characters through just reading hundreds and hundreds of comic books and and uh, the whole Marvel Universe unfurling before our you know eyes and, and hearts and souls and all. And, and, uh, and, you know, replicating that, though, now in pop culture with the movies... I can imagine. I think Stan's first cameo was in the Spider-Man movie. I think, no, the X-Men movie. Yeah, uh, um, and then Spider-Man. And uh, I think for most people, you know, that was their first brush with certainly the X-Men. For most most people, although you know, the X-Men cartoon in the '90s was 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 a watershed moment for that. That I think I think that fan base was built up exponentially beyond what the, the comic book fan base. The animated series even bigger than that, mm-hmm. and then and then that parlayed beautifully into the movie with the built-in audience walking in, especially with young women who were into the cartoon, um, who had grown up watching the cartoon and were ready, primed and ready <laughs> to go see Rogue and see you know Storm and Kitty Pride on the screen because they were big fans from the cartoon. Uh, so to see Stan on the screen was sort of a novelty. I don't think it dawned on people. I think everybody was like, "Who's this old guy?" But I think once people bought into the Marvel Universe, especially with 
Iron Man and the Marvel Cinematic Universe explosion, and then this, this, the cameos became more consistent, and the understanding of who this man was uh, was tied irrevocably to the value people had in these movies. Because I think um, Steven Spielberg described um, superhero movies sort of derisively as you know, sort of the new westerns. Yeah. You know, that that that. Westerns had their time, and eventually they'll play out, and that'll be the that'll be the case for superhero movies. That may be true, but for right now, superhero movies rule, <laughs> and people love them. People love them very, very much. There's a profound feeling of affection for these movies, the storylines that work through them, the, the success on Netflix and everything that we've seen, and, and the streaming services of these characters has been it's just been building and building and building. Uh, and I think that people, uh, Stan is so beloved now worldwide because of that, you know, because of the bond moviegoers have formed with these movies and with this universe. And they now understand that Stan is a part of that through seeing him in these cameos. And so they, they now love him too. And he's like, a, he's, he's the twenty. The 21st century is the age of Stan Lee's celebrity. He, yeah. was sort of a celebrity. he was sort of a celebrity before that, but it wasn't until Stan was, you know, 75 years old that he was genuinely a worldwide celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And it's been, it's been building ever since. And I'll tell you what, the second people uh, learned I was working on this book, I cannot tell you how many civilians, how many normal people just freak out when they find out that I have met Stan and I know Stan and I'm working on a project associated with Stan. They, they want to know about him. They want to talk about him. They ask me what he's like. They ask me to get an autograph from him. I've had dozens of people ask me to get Stan's autograph. And I of course have to, I have to, I have to say no politely. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not an autograph machine. Um, but it's it's just interesting how the uh, the phenomenon has gone worldwide. It was a cult phenomenon, a very large cult phenomenon for for many years, and now it's worldwide and stands an icon. Absolutely. So it's interesting when you mentioned the the cameos. So I was listening to um, uh, now I forget the exact name, but I guess uh, Kevin Smith does the Fat Man on Batman podcast. And they had a, I guess, a two-hour episode just remembering Stan and talking about people's memories of Stan. So he had his, his, a bunch of his own, which were very interesting. And um, one of them was, you know, how they've got him, uh, got Stan to be on Chasing Amy. So not Chasing Amy, right. Mallrats, sorry. Um, and about work, working with him on Mallrats, which is very humorous. And then they had Tom yes. DeSant- Tom DeSantos, who worked on the X Men movie. He was actually he actually was in the audience, and then he started talking about getting Stan to do the cameo uh, in X Men One, and how they had to kind of convince him to do it. Um, and it's just interesting that that ended up becoming its own thing. And I saw an article the other day on CBR where Sam Raimi was saying how originally he didn't want to do the cameo for Stan in Spider-Man 1 and then eventually like realized that that was the, the right thing to do. But at the time, wasn't really a big fan of it. So it's interesting how, again, it's become such a uh, an accepted thing that, of course, you're going to do them. Um, but there was a time when it, neither Stan necessarily was sure if it was, if it was a good idea and even the directors weren't even sure. Right. Well, I, I think... I think time in hindsight has proven that it was a wonderful idea. I yep. think it's added a real element um, of sort of um, what we always took for granted in comics of um, growing up reading these comics. You know, like a, 
a sense of belonging to these movies. We vicariously live uh, through Stan's experience in these movies. And Stan is invariably cast in normal everyman roles, you know, in these cameos. He's just the normal guy uh, looking in awe at the characters, just like we do, you know. And uh, the irony there, though, is that he's looking in awe, but these are characters that he created. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like he, you know, he's the one that spun them out into existence. And um, the great, one of the coolest um, theories floating around was that Stan was the Watcher. <laughs> Stan was always Stan was like you know Uatu the Watcher who was appearing in the midst of the most climactic moments in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to observe and to take in all the uh, experiences that, you know, that, that was going on. I, I like that. I don't know that that was ever the case. That was never set up to be that way. But I think, I think it could be, I think it could be retconned to be that, <laughs> you know, if they wanted to. Well, wasn't, uh, wasn't there a post credit sequence where he's talking to the Watchers? Yeah, that was um, in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, it's but kind he's of like in a spacesuit. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you can, you, I mean, I, as as Stan would do, you can get a no prize to explain why. Uh, exactly right. <laughs> I like that. I, I think that could be done easily. So, speaking of of his cameos, like, is there any particular one that you've always kind of loved as kind of your favorite? Or, I mean, there's so many, uh, and so many, so many fun little things he's done. But was there a particular one that you were particularly enjoying? enjoying? Uh. It's tough. Yeah, there's a lot of them. I, I kind of liked, uh, I like the one in Daredevil where, well, this is going before MCU, but uh, the one in Daredevil where young Matt Murdock protected him from crossing the street. <laughs> it's, it's uh, that was that was cute, um, and uh, I like the one in uh, in Spider-Man where he was uh, the librarian wearing the uh, oh yeah you know, the earphones. And the classical music was, he was jamming to the classical music so loudly <laughs> that he, he was totally oblivious to this world wrecking, library wrecking event happening behind him. I thought that was pretty clever. Um, the cameo in Fantastic Four, which was ripped out of the wedding of Reed and Sue, where he showed up to the wedding and they wouldn't let him in. <laughs> that was great. Well, that was so accurate, too, because I think he even said, like, it's Stan Lee, like, it should be on there. Right. Yeah, right. no, that that was the. Uh, I'm glad they, they they injected that because that that's a yeah, as you said that's ripped from the comics. Yeah, I, yeah. So yeah, I mean, you could. The, there's a reel on YouTube that runs uh, all his cameos in order, and that's always a fun watch. Uh, I, I I don't know how many more they have stockpiled. I'm fairly certain they have one for Captain Marvel, and I, I hope that's not the last one. I, I hope he's got a. At least another one after that, I think, maybe for Avengers. Yeah, I uh, think they confirmed that he did, he did record or uh, did film one for Avengers Four. Okay, great, and that's probably the last one, I guess. Or maybe Spider Man Far From Home. Could I don't know. I don't know. We'll like, I mean, out. I guess we'll find out because I guess they they were starting to I think film a bunch of them in, in bunches because they weren't always sh- uh, sure when they could right. get them out, right? So, right, that's going right. to be weird when we get the last one. Yeah, it will. It sure will. Now, do you think, so I mean, I don't know if it would be Captain Marvel or Avengers 4, but do you think they would have like a four stand at the beginning of the movie or after the end of the movie? I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I I mentioned this on the message board, but um, in Captain Marvel, I hope that they place it in a way where the audience can react Hmm. without the movie, you know, 
you don't want to cheat the movie either. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's going to be very emotional for a lot of people. They're gonna they're gonna see Stan, and it's just gonna be you know he might even get a standing ovation. You never know, (laughs) a standing ovation. And um, you know, I hope they build. I hope they I hope they edit it so that there's at least a a good beat or two where people can get their composure back and get back into the movie. You know. So I have a, a kind of a random question, but obviously working on the, the Tashin book uh, with Roy, and obviously Roy was close with Stan, and I, I guess I'd just seen him like last week. Have you spoken to Roy about any of this? Yeah, um, Roy uh, Roy met with Stan on Saturday, and it was so fortuitous. Uh, we, you know, uh, it kind of tears me up just to think about it, because um, our publisher, Benedict Tashin, had visited with Stan 10 days before um, Stan passed and Benedict was able to show the book to him Um, they talked about the book and actually there's I think we've got a little promotional video that'll be out by the time this podcast goes up uh, of that meeting I I think I saw pictures from it they showed him with the book there was a photo there was a photo released of of him showing Stan the book and of course uh, Stan loved it um, Stan's eyesight's not the best, but a book that size combined with his magnifying glass, uh, abilities, uh, <laughs> he got to see, he got to see a lot of it and they got to talk about certain elements of the book. And, uh, but then flash forward to 10 days later or a week later really is when Roy visited and that was set up, um, sort of at the last minute, you know, uh, but Roy was able to meet with Stan for a good half hour and they had a very nice talk. I know that um, Roy, you know, Roy lives uh, on his property. Uh, he has a bunch of exotic wild animals. You know, that, well, they're not wild, but they're they're exotic animals that he takes care of. And so Stan asked him how those animals were doing, and uh, they talked about um, uh, the fact that uh, there's one thing that we we would we did our part at Tajin to promote and that is Stan's desire that the word comic book be treated as a single compound word okay mm. okay you follow that so far yeah it's not comic space book but it's comic book one word and uh, Stan's reasoning for that is that you know there's nothing inherently funny about comic books but that's what the name implies. Hmm. You know, there's, this is a book of comedy. Uh, whereas, in his mind, comic books have, are a qualified new, all-new genre of storytelling. It's the pairing of uh, words with uh, sequential illustrations. And, uh, and it deserves its own word. And so let's stick comic book together as one word. And so we did that at Tasha. We, we, we treated that word as one word throughout the whole book. And so Roy told him that we had done that, and Stan was very touched <laughs> that we followed through on that. <laughs> and, uh, and I got to admit that when, you know, when I first started, de- you know, my first duty as editor was to read through Roy's substantial and, and very, you know, very long essay. And it was awkward to see that. Comic book is one word. But I'll tell you, it, I got very used to it very quickly. <laughs> so we just had to change our spell check, uh, you know, system, and 
we had to remind all our proofreaders down the line, hey, leave this alone. Leave comic book alone. <laughs> and uh, all our translators, because Tasha publishes around the world, so the Spanish and German translators had to know to leave, you know, comic book alone here. But uh, so Roy got to tell him that. He was just so thrilled. Uh, and, and he's serious about that, and we're all serious about that. So anybody hearing this, do, do it. Do it for Stan. Try it out for a while. It may feel awkward. It may feel weird. <laughs> Write comic book is one word. And if people correct you, if people say, hey, that's misspelled, say, nope, Stan Lee told me it's one word. <laughs> so you can, you can try it out, too. I expect you. Absolutely. Okay. So, so is it, do, you, do you guys in anywhere in the book like make note of that, or you just take it and go with that? Yes. Like. There's an editorial note up front. Okay, I was just curious because people because it might drive some people crazy if they didn't know. Yeah, it may at first. I'm I'm willing to say it may drive people crazy at first, but by the end of the book, you will be sold on it. Trust me. That's <laughs> part of the purchase price is uh, you accommodating to this new word. <laughs> uh, we throw that in as a free bonus, but uh, but no, but Roy, you know, Roy and Stan have been uh, you know compadres since the mid 60s uh that's you know 50 plus years and uh 60 plus years and so a lot of uh you know roy's life has evolved the way it has because of stan and and roy just like any other comic creator owes a, a huge debt to stan and uh you know like i told roy i was like you know roy up you know i'm glad that you were there to see him because of all the people on the planet, you you know him the best. You you've known him the longest, and uh, and you care the most. It's like the three way three way thing. There, you got it all, man. And, and <laughs> you were able to, you were able to be there to see him and to give him that joy uh, so shortly before he was going to leave us. And I, I just. I feel like it was meant to be, and I, I'm so proud that he he not only got to see the the book from our publisher, but he got to see the book from Roy um, as well. So, um, yeah, I get uh, i i get very i get very emotional thinking about it. For sure. Well, I mean, this is. I mean, as you said on, on our, our last conversation, I mean, Stanley's been a part of your life forever, <laughs> uh, yeah, and yeah. not not just as a fan, but also now professionally and like working with him. And that that's that's something that a lot of us don't have. Although it's interesting, like everyone has in some way their own Stanley story in some way, which is is such an interesting like figure that everyone kind of has their own kind of emotional connection to him in a way that we don't have with like he just touches around so many different lines in a way that most people don't right absolutely it's amazing to see how many pictures people are sharing uh with uh with stan because stan was available stan made himself available he and that was part of of why you know one of the things he's he did so well in his life was to be an ambassador for comic books Mm mm-hmm he uh, from very early on, once Marvel became a hit, and he started to sense the serious uh, social undercurrents that were happening with comics because of the Marvel age of comics, and what what uh, fans were writing in their letters, and fans were calling on the phone, and they he had a tiger by the tail, and he knew exactly 
how to ride it. Um, and part of that was to go out and meet the fans. This was before conventions. This was before you know trade shows or anything like that. Uh, he would go out and meet the fans. He'd, he'd, he'd have the fan clubs come into the office. We have a great picture in the book, actually a couple pictures of him meeting with fans in the office in the day. Um, out on the streets talking, to, he would meet fans at restaurants or bookstores and, and, and regale them with uh, you know stories. And it was it was a big recruitment drive for this mythology. It was like you're one of us. You know, we're telling these stories, and you're you're buying these books. And hey, you know, we're in this together. You know, and uh, and he went to college campuses. Um, he had a he had a tour itinerary that was like you know. It was like Van Halen, you know, or, you know, it was like he was he was on the road a lot. A lot of people don't know that. But um, he would go from one campus to the next. He'd fly out. I think we reproduced one of his itineraries um, where he went to Michigan and he, he went to this college and that college and this college and that college and in a very short period of time. And then he flew back to New York to get right back to work. And uh, so all those college kids got to see lectures from Stan and they weren't really lectures. They were more like question and answers. You know, Stan was more comfortable fielding questions from people than giving prepared remarks. Hmm. You know, that's just the kind of guy Stan was. He had, he had a gift for gab. He had a knack for, um, you know, being extemporaneous speaking. And, um, and, and also any conversation you got in with Stan, he made you feel like a million bucks and he had an answer ready for you. Like, like that, that was just snapping my fingers there. Um, and and his jokes landed very quickly. <laughs> and even into his older age, he he and I never I never heard him tell the same joke the same the same time twice with me. All right, this the snappy patter. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure he, he did with with you know. Eventually, he would repeat the same snappy patter. You know, yeah. but with me. It was always something new, and it was always based in the moment, and it was always responsive to what was happening in the moment. And that's a talent that I don't have. <laughs> I know a lot of people don't have it, but Stan did. Um, and, you know, it's, real quick before we move on, I, I wanted to say, you know, if you go back to the 1940s, Stan was doing two things that he became famous for later. One was uh, when he wrote that book, Secrets Behind the Comics which our Tashin book, The Stanley Story, has a facsimile of that book that will be a part of the, the package. But Stan wrote that book in 1946, I think, or 47. Um, and it was a it was an invitation to people to imagine themselves being in, in the comic book world, being a writer, being an editor, being an artist. Stan was already, at a time when nobody else really was, uh, thinking in those terms. And uh, and that predated the Marvel Age by 20 years, you know. The other thing he did was find a way to get uh, the characters and timely characters together in the same stories. Uh, he did that in text stories uh, and uh, editorially, you know, that towards the end of All Winners, they would have, you know, the team-ups and stuff. Now... Um, you know, early on there was the Human Torch and Submariner mm-hmm. fights and stuff like that. Yeah. So he wasn't—he didn't invent that, but his early inclination was like, "Geez, we've got all these great characters. Let's put them together." You know, uh, and so those were two concepts that he rolled into the Marvel Age with, 
uh, once he realized what was happening, once he realized that this spurt they had in the early 60s that wasn't going to peter out, it was it was actually growing in momentum, he employed these things to great effect. And here we are today talking about Marvel Comics because of that kind of stuff. It's interesting, too, because, again, the, the idea of a shared universe is so everywhere now like everyone wants right. to create shared universes and it's just because it seems so natural now like why wouldn't you want to create not just you know one property or you know one ip but like have everything kind of connected it just seems cooler that way and that it's interesting how it's not that long you know it hasn't been around that long as a concept but now it's so ubiquitous to sometimes to the detriment like it's just like focus on making something work first and then then build outwards now it's like well we got to build a universe and it's like hold on like you got to build strong characters first and then see how they can fit together right and that's what the marvel cinematic universe did kevin feige um you know partly because it had to be this way because marvel invested half a billion dollars of their own money to start their movie companies so they couldn't they couldn't make nine movies in a two-year period like DC has wanted to do recently. They had to start honestly, and they started with Iron Man and Hulk. And when those were a success, uh, they they built gradually, and to finally uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has um, honestly won the uh, devotion of millions of people around the world because they did it the right way, one foot in front of the other. Uh, progress as dictated by reality and popularity, and and here we are now. And that's exactly what uh, Stan Lee did in the Marvel Age. They built they built him and Jack and Steve Ditko built slowly. You know, they of course the, again that was dictated a lot by economics. They were you know they were only allowed to publish so many comics, and they were risk averse, uh, and that showed in what they were doing and, and the rate they were doing it. But once they realized what they had, they just they just went all out, you know. Uh, the Marvel bullpen just rocked it, you know, and and uh, they had won, honestly won an audience. They didn't buy it. They didn't, you know. The audience just grew on its own, and that's where the loyalty came from. And I, that's what's happened with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting too because almost, almost to the letter. Foggy is also again kind of I mean not in not he's not not that he's Stanley but like again he's the kind of guy the guy who's shepherded it and been able to do it in such a way that you know the steps the 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 potentially crazy gambles have worked because they have a you know they have a method to their madness like whoever would have thought the Gardens of the Galaxy would be a thing like uh, like yeah, I, when that comic came out like when sorry not the original obviously but they kind of the, the movie guardians per se uh when that happened like 10 years ago like that was cool but then they're like we're gonna make that a, co- a movie i'm like i mean that's a big swing i don't know like how other people are gonna be able to accept that but they found a way to make it work and that's that's amazing yeah it is it is feige's smart enough to know that the template is already there he can look back to what stan did in the 60s and there's the template and that's exactly what they've done with the movies. And when you look at the characters and how they treated the characters, they have left the characters largely alone. I mean, there's 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 differences, subtle differences here and there, but the core elements of the characters remain. They haven't touched them uh, because Stan, Steve, Jack, all those guys already tested those characters, and those characters have stood the test of time. You know, and and why mess with that? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they, they, they really haven't. You know, it's just amazing. And, and success has followed. 
And it's funny that you've mentioned uh, Guardians because, yeah, that was still, you know, those were still treacherous times when you're not sure if this is, as a Marvel fan, I was bewildered that this was even happening. It was just like (laughs) all these great movies, but, uh, you know, is really Guardians is going to happen? And, uh, but it's amazing now. uh, I don't, I don't think anything's impossible now. You know, it's like Captain Marvel's coming up. I just know it's going to be a blockbuster. I just know, you know, everybody's, (laughs) Everybody's going to love Carol Danvers, you know. It's just going to happen. Uh, Black Panther, you know. I, I knew Black Panther was going to be a success. I didn't know it was going to be as big as it was. And uh, But now Black Panther is like a worldwide... Black Panther, the, the, the lexicon of Black Panther, you know, Wakanda and Killmonger and, uh, you know, Vibranium and all that stuff. These are household words now, <laughs> you know. It's just crazy. It is. And, uh, you know, but all that stuff was battle tested in the '60s, man. You know, Stan and, and those and those and his and his artists and you know fellow creators and all—they've already worked through all this stuff. So it's it's not. I don't want to say it's not that hard of a job. Of course, it's 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 incredibly difficult to make a three hundred million dollar movie. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, the template is there, and and to Kevin Feige's credit. They have stuck to it. So let me ask you a, a random question then. So, I mean, it's like Guardians was kind of probably one of the bigger swings they had to take. Um, of the kind of characters still kind of in the stable that haven't had a cinematic presence, which one do you think would be the you know, the most oddball or, or you know, the, the hardest swing for them to take now that they've already accomplished Guardians and they've made people okay with Doctor Strange's magic and they've been able to, you know, make Ant-Man work and Ant-Man and the Wasp be a good and uh, something people like. What do you think would be the next biggest swing? The next biggest swing? If I heard Marvel was going to make a movie titled Giant Size Man Thing, <laughs> uh, that would be the biggest swing uh, that I would be like, all right, wait a second, guys. All right, hold on. <laughs> no. But they already did a Man Thing movie, but it was like not that great. No. I actually haven't seen it, but I really want to go see it because, oh my God, I love the woman who plays Hellcat, who plays uh, Patsy Walker. Rachel Taylor? Yeah, Rachel Taylor. Oh, she's so wonderful. And she actually, one of her early acting roles was in that movie. Really? I did so, not know that. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, bring Man Thing back. Let's try to make that work, man. You know? <laughs> so, actually, to a, a fair answer to that question might be, um, you know, it might be like something like Submariner, you know, mm. because... DC has beat Marvel sort of to the underwater monarch, you know, yeah. with Aquaman. So it would be kind of hard to bring Aquaman, uh, Submariner to the screen when it's going to look like copycatting or whatever. Just like it would be hard for DC now to bring an Atom to the screen because we've got Ant-Man already, you know. Marvel's right. got Ant-Man. Uh, it's just the nature of the business, but, I mean, it can be done. True. But, well, um, although if they go with the kind yeah. of the, the sort of the Atom kind of idea, it would kind of still work. Uh, the Adam Woodwork? Well, I think because uh, wasn't there a version of the Adam comic where he was again more he, like not the quantum realm, but the when he went super tiny and he was having all sorts of kind of more almost sword and sorcery adventures? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, they can do it. It can be done. Uh, but it would be tough. It would be hard. It would be yeah. a big swing. You know? Yeah. Movie goers would be like, "Do I really want to go see another movie about a superhero that's really tiny?" You know? <laughs> uh, 
you know, and the same thing with Marvel. Do I really want to go? I've already seen Aquaman. Why do, why do I want to go see Submariner? True. That, that's kind of, that would be hard. And uh, But I, I would love to see Submariner on the screen. So who knows? I'd love to see an Alpha Perfect. Flight movie. Uh, sure, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Although I bet you we'd see the Alpha Flight in outer space kind of type movie. Oh, yeah. I guess that's possible. Yeah, I don't, the Canadian super team version, I don't know how that's going to happen. Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't I don't think that's gonna I don't think there's as big a market for that. Nah, unfortunately, I, I hate to say it because I know you live in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, now if it was a Chinese super team, I think they would make that overnight. But uh, movies movies don't open wide in Canada and make zillions of dollars. No. So, uh, in fact, I think that might have been one of the reasons why they moved Alpha Flight to outer space to give it that texture. So that when they did parlay that IP into the movies, that they would wouldn't be held down necessarily by. Hmm. I God, I sound awful. I sound like I hate Canadians, but just <laughs> from a pure Machiavellian way of looking at the property, it's like you know, if if they do want to exercise that property, better to have it be a more uh, pun intended uh, universal <laughs> uh, usage of that of that IP. Anyway. Uh, but aren't we, you know, in one way, it's like, we're not talking about Stan, but in a way we are, um, and that's the way we approach the book. The book, Stanley's story is, is about Stanley, his life and also his legacy. So, um, on every page, you're not guaranteed to see a picture of Stan, but what you are guaranteed to see is his effect on pop culture, mm-hmm. his effect on comics culture and pop culture. Um, we take you in some very unexpected directions. Um, there's uh, there's one uh, particular band in, from the UK uh, in the late 70s. They were sort of a part of the punk movement uh, in the late 70s, and they were called The Table. And uh, I've become good pals with the, the member of this band and doing research for the book and working with him to get some materials included. But this band put out a single called uh, Do the Standing Still, and I encourage everybody to go pull that video up on YouTube. It's on video. Someone did a really good job of orchestrating this video. But the video, uh, the, the song, Do the Standing Still, the lyrics of the song are called from Marvel Comics. Oh. They're called they're cold from the hype copy on, on the covers of a lot of the Marvel Age comics. And uh, it's a really, it's a riot, man. It's great. And uh, so they were big comic book fans. Tony is Tony Barnes, the, the leader of the band, was a huge comic book fan. And they have some promo pictures, vintage promo pictures from the late 70s, when they took some promo pictures in a comic book shop over in, uh, over in uh, London. I think it was London. It was somewhere. Um, and... Uh, and it's just really cool. So we have material like that. So here, and their, their single actually hit the top of the, not the top, but it was like a top 25 hit um, on, the, on, the B, on the BBC charts, which is not nothing to sneeze at. You know, it was, a, it, was, it was, people heard it. And this is a person whose punk band in the late 70s was co- completely uh, inspired by Stan Lee. And, wow. uh, uh so there's a little stuff like that, the little Easter eggs in Stan's legacy that we've included in the book. And uh, so, so we're sitting here talking about Alpha Flight, and Alpha Flight is a natural byproduct of the universe 
and the mythology that Stan created, even though he didn't literally create Alpha Flight, uh, his imprint is on it. Well, speaking of obviously that you know the the legacy and the mythology, I mean the fact that you know there was a whole generation of people who glamorized and wanted to be part of the Marvel bullpen is again a testament to the way he made people bond with you know the people putting together the comic and the fact that you actually had full credits on those books as well, which was much further than most companies were at that point, and so that people would start to bond with you know oh and giving everyone their nicknames. I mean that that became a thing. Like that's. Yeah. You know, it, it's a badge of honor to have to have an, an honor. Uh, sorry, have a nickname bestowed upon you by by a Stan. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, that brings up sort of um, sort of the uh, sort of a negative side of some of the stuff that I've been dealing with the last few days. Um, that that there is a, a vocal minority, and as I've said, they're very vocal and they're very much a minority. But, you know, the people who want to drag Stan down because for whatever reasons, there's lots of reasons. And I've seen some things. I, I shouldn't have gone on Twitter. <laughs> but Twitter is mostly was mostly people sharing their wonderful reminiscences and, and, and praise and all that. And, you know, and it, it's not like it's not okay to criticize Stan. I mean, Stan's a public figure and Stan is built to take criticism. But uh, some people... You know, we just launch into the most ill-considered, foundationless, superficial, you know, eviscerations of his legacy. And they would chalk up, you know, just, you know, just imagine the kind of things that people would say about Stan. Which I think, you know, whatever kernel of truth there is to some of that, it's uh, it's wildly exaggerated. It's, it's hyped beyond belief. And it's mostly propagated by people who want clicks uh, and who want that who want that contrarian opinion about someone that's nearly universally beloved to be able to promote themselves uh, for whatever reason. And that bothers me because Stan, it's not like Stan's not beyond reproach. Of course he's not. But, uh, but as you said, when we talk about credit, Stan didn't give credit where it was due, blah, blah, blah. Stan gave credit before just about anybody else in publishing did. Uh, EC, EC had EC had tried to lift up their creators and they did a great job of that but the Marvel Age perfected it uh, and Stan like you said all those little credits boxes once they got rolling on that and it became a thing Stan had every intention of making his artists stable rock stars you know and they became rock stars to the nerds who read those books the obsessive readers you know and if, if you and i had been in the 60s we would have been the obsessive nerds reading <laughs> those books and you know jack kirby steve ditko don heck you know these guys were household names to the readership 10 years before all those guys were working in comics they weren't really household names you know uh some of the best work of jack's life was done in the 40s and 50s but if the Marvelation had never happened, we'd only be looking at a small group of people would probably be looking back on that nostalgically. But the Marvel Age did happen and and Jack Jack and Steve Dicko, their names were elevated. Stan elevated them. Uh, I don't know what else to say. Uh, you know, 
stand through the Marvel, Mary Martin, the MMMS. <laughs> uh, you know the record where he pulled he pulled together the whole bullpen to take part in this record. That was intended to create a synergy around all these personalities, you know. And Ditko doesn't even show up. God love him. <laughs> and they had to make it. They had to make a joke out of that. You know, Absolutely. where's Ditko? Maybe he really is Spider Man. Maybe he really is Spider Man because he ain't here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, he ain't here when you need him. Which is, you know, there's Spider Man though. Uh, uh, it must be Ditko. You know, it's just so funny. And uh, so the idea of uh, individual artists getting credit began in earnest in the Marvel Age, and that was an editorial decision. And uh, and I think that. I forget if we even got into this deep, but it bears stressing now with our limited time remaining. But I think that I think that um, Stan, the credit Stan's get, the credit Stan gets comes from him whether he likes it or not. And a lot of people are very uninformed when they throw credit around, and they say Stan Lee created, you know, Spider Man, and they don't know enough to say. But also, Steve Ditko created him too. You know, that's just the way people are, and it's just—it's just natural that Stan gets more respect in that manner. Yeah. Um, but we're getting better. We're getting better at educating people about the anonymous, the formerly anonymous artists who slaved over their drawing tables to draw these things uh, in relative anonymity. Certainly, more anonymous than Stan, who was able to be out there and be the public voice, because that's what was required to make this revolution happen. Every revolution needs a dynamic voice to lead it. They need a dynamic voice on the front line waving that flag so that you know who's coming and so that you're ready for it. Uh, and that was Stan. And nobody else could have done that job. You tell me You tell me what personality <laughs> that, that, that existed in that time and that place could have done what Stan did. And I will sit here waiting a very long time. Absolutely. Because, because there was nobody. There was no artist that could have stood up and done this. Their job, for better or worse, was better spent drawing these beautiful tales. That's where they're. That's where they're. They were best suited. And and as much as I love DC, who at DC, if Stan had been hit by a bus and Martin Goodman had to hire somebody over from DC, who would have who would have done what Stan did? I, I can sit here waiting for you to answer that. <laughs> you know? DC was really good at making DC comics. And then when they realized they had to imitate Stan, they weren't so good at imitating Stan. It took them a while to, to you know, to get that figured out, you know. Uh, but but imitate Stan, they knew they had to do that. Of course, they mocked him and ridiculed him all, all, all along the way, mm-hmm. which, which is fine. <laughs> you know, a good rivalry is, is bad for nobody, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I, I just got done reading the, both of the Teen Titans uh, – Omnibus volumes, which are great, you know, the 60s and 70s era. Oh, yeah. I never read them, so I read them. And, um, you know, as wonderful as the, and fun as those stories are, they're kind of stuck in their time, and and, and they're nostalgic. You know, it's, it, the benefit I get out of it is the nostalgia of that period. It's soaked in that period, and it's, it gives me a window into that period that have, not having lived in it helps me understand it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
It's weird. But, it's weird to think about the juxtaposition, though, that when those comics were being done, they look at what Marvel was putting out at the same time. It just exactly. seems so different. Exactly, and there was a special, uh, a special brew that Stan and, and and all those guys guys were doing, and that was you know the emotional quality of those comics. You know, you can call it melodrama if you want, and I think Stan did, uh, but the injection of uh, melodrama into those stories made them more gripping and more resonant over time. The the uh, the transformational nature of, of adding frailties to the characters was a significant thing that took a long while for DC to catch up to. And even today, they're flagship characters, which are all wonderful characters. Batman. Uh, Batman's probably the closest to a Marvel character there is, but Superman, Wonder Woman, they're perfect. Hmm. They're really perfect. And But... But the, the, the new synergy of comic storytelling was the Marvel the Marvel way, where you know readers could not not only have wish fulfillment of like wouldn't it be wonderful to to be these superheroes, but also gosh, you know it feels so real to me. They have problems like I do too. So mm-hmm. you know what an amazing thing to to capture. Absolutely, uh, and and so. Uh, that is what the differences were in what Stan was doing as an editor. editor. And I, I'd love to finish, I'd love to read what Corey wrote. Corey Settlemeyer, Marvel Masterworks editor. Extraordinary. Uh, yeah, had a very <laughs> eloquent uh, thing that he said. Um, and I'm trying to find it on the on the thing here. If you want to Talk to me for a second, so yeah. I can, well, we can find it. Yeah, we can we can vamp a little. Well, one of the things I wanted to say again about you know the kind of the the cult of personality that, that Stan was able to put in, into place is you know I mentioned earlier even the the idea of a no prize like that a way of engaging your audience to you know okay you figured out that you know this doesn't really make sense we'll make it make sense like that's right. that's an engagement of your audience in a way that recognizes maybe some of the shortcomings at times in the in you know the writing or the art but it puts a fun spin on it and it's it, it made it an engagement where okay show us and then you know, like that's such a it's such an interesting thing like the idea of a no prize sounds crazy on its premise but he sold it so completely and then so like I'm obviously much younger than you know people who would have been reading it in the 60s but even then I'm, I was already learning what a no prize was when I was coming into comics in the late 80s early 90s it was a thing it was this you know this this cool thing that you could you know try and you'd see the letters pages and people trying to you know work themselves out of weird zigzags just to be able to explain something and that all started with you know Stan engaging his audience like who else did that it was like you right. know that that's really cool there was so much value added to being a Marvel reader it's ridiculous and that was one of the things is uh, you know you, did, you weren't just reading a comic book story but you were taking part in this pageant of experience mm-hmm. that Stan, Stan was the leader of and it, it's sort of a backhanded compliment that a lot of people say that he was like a P.T. Barnum uh, P.T. Barnum was a dynamic personality just like Stan, but <clears throat> Marvel Comics was real. Stan Stan was not selling hype. Marvel Comics was real and it you know, the amount of people that bought into it it over a long period of time. Uh, and it's straddling generations. He had adolescent readers, he had college readers, he had adult readers. <clears throat> and those audiences grew up with him. That's that could never happen without substance behind it. So he wasn't just selling, you know, 
some dancing elephant show. He was he was you know he was selling something very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so um, getting back to I found what Corey wrote, which is a great lead into what I want to say here about what what credit is due Stan. Um, whenever people start heaping praise on Stan, it, it almost always begins and ends with the characters. You know, all these characters that you love, Stan created them. Um, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. It's a lot of shared creation. But think about how many wonderful characters there are. There's a truism in comics that any character can be made great. You've seen all the, you know, um, like Alan Moore took the Charlton characters, took the template of Blue Beetle and, and Captain Adam and those characters and made Watchmen out of them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, without Watchmen, we may not even be talking about Charlton characters. But they've got this second life because of the sort of the connection they have to this timeless tale of the Watchmen. Um, even, so, sorry, even, even so, when you mentioned the other day was that you know you're loving uh, Nick Spencer his work on Boomerang because Boomerang is something a character you really care a lot exactly, about. And exactly. prior to and it, Spencer, he was just kind of a throwaway half the time. Right, and it's funny you mentioned that because I've spent the last few days I haven't even really read anything by Stan. I've just been too sad to pick up something by Stan. But I have been reading Nick Spencer's Amazing Spider-Man, and it's like this is this is the legacy, man. It continues to this day. It continues to this day, and it's like there's a there's a through line from 1962 when Spider-Man was created to today, and uh, it's that's Stan is in there, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, so in, in one way, the characters saying that Stan is owed all this praise because of the characters is really underselling the significance of Stan Lee. All right. And, uh, it was his skills as an editor and, and, and a salesman and uh, a leader, uh, the right man at the right place at the right time doing all the right things. Uh, and, and so I'm going to read what Corey wrote here. And I think it sums it up greatly. Uh, so here's what Corey Settlemeyer wrote on the day Stan passed. So there are many things to appreciate about Stan's talent and contributions to the world of comics. As an editor, uh, I have always felt that his editorial skill is grossly under-recognized. It's probably because what editors do is a bit of a black box to most, but Stan was an absolute genius at it. An editor wears many hats. One of them is not unlike a baseball manager's. You have to build the team. After the 1957 distribution collapse nearly killed the company and forced Stan to lay off everyone, artists did not have to come back. Why jump back in with an outfit that was uncertain at best? Yet amidst that uncertainty, Stan pulled together not just a couple of -of middle-of-the-road talents. He assembled the absolute dream team of artists. Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Don Heck, John Romita, John Buscema, Gene Colan, Bill Everett, Dick Ayers, Joe Sennett. Why did these guys throw in with a company that looked half dead? Because they knew Stan. They knew he was a great editor, someone who had built relationships, had earned trust, showed he could identify their creative voices and pair them well with others, and do it all while managing deadlines, budgets, and the boss's boot on your neck. That is not easy. Most struggle, many fail. Stan excelled. An editor also has to have a finger on the pulse of the readership. Not what they want, but what they don't know yet. But what they don't yet know that they want. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, 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 mis, I misread that, but you get it. Yeah. So selling people what they don't know they want yet takes vision. And vision can be difficult while juggling the stresses and ever-changing priorities of monthly publishing. Someone can show up saying they have the greatest idea ever, but if the editor doesn't see it, it's dead on arrival. And even if the editor is sold on it, then they have to take have the skill to convince the boss that this great new idea isn't just burning up his money. And that's tough to do. And Stan brought every great Marvel idea through that process. And to me as an editor, again, this is Corey Settlemeyer writing this. To me as an editor, that's why he's the man. And he did it while writing almost all the books and training the next generation editors, writers, and artists and becoming the greatest promoter of comic books that we will ever see. The man. (laughs) (laughs) I love it because it's succinct and it puts together precisely what Stan brought to the table in the Marvel Age. And ask yourself after reading that, what would have happened without Stan Lee? What would have happened? Nothing. I I just, I I just, I I mean, you can, you can write several what if issues and comics may have succeeded fine without Stan. They might have, they might have done just fine. We'll never know. But what we do know is in 2018, we know what pop culture looks like now. We see where Disney buys Marvel for $4 billion and and eight years later, that looks like a steal. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like they buy they buy the Fox properties now for I lost count of uh, of how high that that value went just to get the X-Men and Fantastic 4 back and just to launch a streaming service that's dedicated to uh partly of course dedicated to getting a yield on Marvel properties, which is going to happen and it's going to be ridiculous and we're all going to love it. We're all going to be subscribing to it. That none of this would be happening DC would not have geared up to make nine movies in a two-year period a few years back without Stan in the Marvel Age. I just none of this, none of this, none of this would be happening. And I, I guess the last thing I would like to say, and I believe this from the bottom of my heart, and I know that there's haters out there that are going to choke on this when they when they hear me say it. <laughs> but I think that every single comic book creator living, uh, every, every time we draw. A paycheck. We we should at least in our minds write a small little check to Stan, because he he whether whether or not you think he saved the industry and whether or not you think that's overrated, he certainly inflated the value of this industry to extraordinary uh, horizons, and and we're here now as a living testament to that. You know, and, and we owe him. We we still owe him. It's funny for a guy they say has had too much credit. I don't think he's had enough credit, <laughs> and uh, it just needs to be the right kind of credit. And we also, at the same time, we're giving credit to Stan. We need to make sure people are learning. All these hundreds of millions of people around the world who Steve Ditko was, and who Jack Kirby was, and who John Buscema was, and who these guys were, you know, that toiled alongside uh, Stan and were underappreciated in their time. And we need to cut Stan some slack because we all know he was trying like hell to lift these guys up and give them a public image and give them the respect that their talents were due. And that that, that it didn't work out precisely the way it should have to, to maxim for those people to maximize their you know, that public image. 
some of that is just the way it is, you know. And uh, I don't think most of that even comes close to falling on Stan. But that's a topic for another day. All I know is that I love Stan now, and I'm going to miss him. And we all miss him. And this is the time to reflect on what he meant. And it's just a wonderful thing to be able to do that. So. It's, it's been an interesting week to be able to, as you said before, like be able to read everyone's stories. Like it doesn't matter how big that person was or not, just to read all the different remembrances and, and stories of, you know, a pretty much almost universally beloved person. Um, right. I'm curious how many years do you think before Hollywood makes an actual biopic? Of Stan? Yeah. Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's been talk about it. Uh, you know, I don't know about an actual biopic, but I know there, there's definite interest in Stan Lee's. I can tell you, I, you know, I can't really go on the record about this, but I know, I know that there's been great interest in Stan. Stan is an icon, <laughs> you know, whether it's documentaries or whether it's feature films that parlay his, uh, his iconography, uh, and an actual biopic, um, Honestly, I think a better biopic would be just the Marvel bullpen. You know, mm-hmm. um, it would be the the whole the whole synergy between the inception of Marvel and um, you know w- what these men all went through to to build comic book as a genre and to keep it alive when it was on life support yeah. for, for for you know years here and years there, and then finally to hit Pater with the Marvel Age to entrench. Uh, Marvel to, to entrench comic books as a pastime in readership in a way that just locked it down. Um, it, it, it's it, it guaranteed that comic books, you know, comic books would have bad times in the future, no doubt. Um, you know, the late seventies and then the mid to late nineties were bad times for comic books, but it wasn't because people didn't want to read comics, and it wasn't because comic book storytelling had become unfashionable. It was because of outside economic concerns that that was the case. Mm. Um, comic book storytelling is with us and has been with us forever. And I really do believe that it's down to Stan Lee planting his flag and, and getting the rest of us to salute and saying this was going to be a lifetime preoccupation for us. We had bought in, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he built a community out of nothing, you know. And so there you go. It's interesting. So I, I recently saw Bohemian Rhapsody, so the you know the Queen biopic. I mean, it's it's Queen, but it's it's also really about Freddie Mercury. And I feel like if they did a Marvel bullpen movie, it would kind of feel like the same. Like you know, it's about the bullpen, but I mean, everyone's there because they know Stan. Yeah, yeah, but you know, there's 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 a lot of pathos in, in Jack Kirby's story. You know, you might not be able to get a good story out of Steve Ditko because he was so opaque. You know, you just could not penetrate <laughs> that that man. But, um, you know, Jack, oh, somebody, somebody could really come up with a great biopic for Jack Kirby, no doubt. Um, uh, it, it, you know, just entering that man's mind hmm. would be a fruitful uh, world. Just imagine the stuff that went on in his mind that never reached the paper, the page, you know. It's like, and, and look at what did. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment how much... Jack Kirby left behind how much there is we're, we're so blessed to have the quantity of Kirby in our lives that we do and uh, they're still adapting his material to this day yeah and as as a Kirby fan I'm just like keep it coming you know uh, but just imagine what was in his mind that never made it out <laughs> you know and uh, so yeah you know 
I think uh, I think between Stan and Jackie, sure you could have a couple good biopics, but I still think that there's a movie to be made. And, uh, there's a lot of drama intact in the and just the telling a Marvel bullpen story. Mm-hmm. You know that that uh, that would be very interesting. So, but I'm not the one uh, building budgets of hundred million dollars to make movies like this. You know, so. <laughs> So my, the last question I'll ask you then um, will be if, if when people are, are done listening to this podcast, done listening to other stories they've been hearing with Stan this week, and if they were to kind of sit down and read one Stan story right now, that's kind of a, a good distillation of, of what he was as a writer and as a as an entertainer, what, what would you have people read right now? Uh, this is a slam dunk answer for me. Um, and uh, it's Amazing Fantasy number 15. Yeah. And... Um, so, give me a moment here, because <laughs> I'm getting choked up. You know, I think uh, I think we all owe it to ourselves to read this story that we have read, you know, a hundred times already, and just read it again. Yeah, because it's one of the most perfect stories ever written, and so concise. Yeah, eleven pages. And like I said on the message board, it's 11 pages and, and you get the story of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And that's what Steve Ditko and, and Stan Lee did for us. And uh, it's timeless. Yeah, it still plays and everyone knows that story. Yeah, absolutely. So go read that again and read it, you know, read it knowing Stan is gone. Read it for the first time knowing that Stan is no longer a part of this world. And just see how it hits you. I haven't had the courage to do it yet, but I will. <laughs> okay. So, well, John, thank you so much for for spending your time with us today. And uh, in the future, we'll we'll have happier things to talk about. And this, obviously, this, this is a little bit more emotional at the time. But uh, I appreciate you coming on to talk about Stan. And I appreciate you having me. And I hope you can get a few other people on board to reminisce about Stan because I think a lot of people would just enjoy. Um, hearing, hearing more. I kind of, so. I kind of feel like for the next year, whenever I interview someone, it's always going to be like, "Do you have a stand story?" Right. Because right. I feel like that's kind of a perfunctory thing to say now. Actually, one thing I think we've only ever mentioned it off off podcast. I don't know if you want to mention it here, but you did get a nickname from Stan, did you not? I did. I did. Yes. Uh, this is a great story. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't mention this before, but yeah. So when I first met Stan. Um, I, first of all, I'm not much of an autograph hound. Even with my books, I just it's not an obsession of mine. Um, it probably ought to be because it's pretty damn cool to have people that you love sign the books that they've brought light to your life. But I just never it's never the first thing on my mind. Uh, but when I went to meet Stan in 2006, uh, I trucked on out to Beverly Hills to his office, and I took along a, a friend of mine because I. You know, I didn't mind having the help because I was going to interview Stan. I was going to interview him, and I was nervous. And I, I figured if someone was with me to tag team with me, it would take some of the edge off a little bit. But also, frankly, I wanted to share the experience. And I, I knew if I was going to see Stan and I could wedge one other person in there, that it would have significance for the rest of their life. That was a good gift to give to somebody. Mm-hmm. So Justin Fairfax, who is a longtime board member, uh, came with me. He lives out in L.A., and so he came with me. And... Uh, he brought something. I forget what he brought, but I did bring a Silver Surfer Masterworks for a friend of mine to get signed. Uh, but I brought the book. I brought was the uh, book that Stan wrote 
with another author in 2002, I think, or 2003. It was his biography slash autobiography. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, my friend whips out his book to sign, and it was something cool. And then I whip out the Silver Surfer, and that was cool. And Stan was very generous to sign them. And then I whip out this book, and he's like, what? You want me to sign that? <laughs> he's like, that book's terrible. He's like, Are you, you don't have anything else to sign? I was like, no, Stan, this is what I brought. And he's like, you don't want me to sign your underwear instead? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, I was like, he, he, he would have rather signed my underwear than sign that book. But uh, I'll remember that to this day. But uh, he uh, he just didn't really like the book. He didn't think out, he didn't think it came out the way he wanted it to, uh, which I will I will brag to the top of the hills the Stanley story that we've published does every bit of that. So uh, Stan had his final blessing met for that. But he signed on the title page. He said to Rollickin Rhett. <laughs> so uh, that's my name, Rollickin Rhett. <laughs> Do you still have a it's copy of that book? Oh yeah, don't. Are you kidding? I'm just making sure. It's this <laughs> cheesy. It's this cheesy soft cover trade paperback that you know, you know, you can get for a dollar on Amazon. Although I bet the prices have gone up. But um, yeah, that's a timeless heirloom for the rest of my life. Hell yeah, the, that's in my that's in my rescue in case of fire first box. <laughs> did you ever have him, Did you ever have him sign anything else in the future, or like in all the other times you met with him, or no? Uh, actually, I did, and this is going to come as a um, maybe a source of hurt for some people because I've I've been asked by dozens of people if I could get something signed from Stan, and I had to politely decline because anytime I was with Stan, it was for business, and I'm not going to not going to besiege him with autograph requests when I'm on the clock. Um, but I did think that if there was if there was an opportunity that I'd like to have a few things on hand for some people that I felt, you know, deserved it. And I, 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 you know, there was a, a friend of mine from college whose son is autistic and a huge Marvel fan and a huge Stan Lee fan. So I was like, Hey, you know, I'll, I'll get something for him. And another friend of mine, um, you know, that I worked with, uh, at one of my waiting jobs a long time ago, she and I are still very good friends and her daughter, you know, aspires to be a writer one day and is a huge stand. Stan is like one of her icons. And so I figured, let me get something for her. Um, and so there were a few people like that. There were, and so, um, like on the last day I was, I was there, I, I, there was a moment where I could do that. And I, I pulled him out and Stan, I'd love to. And, uh, and he signed each of them. And I remember the one I got for the girl, uh, who wants to be the writer, you know, I went to the comic book store in L.A. and uh, I bought some things that were appropriate for each of them. And uh, I got her the uh, – there was a trade that had just come out, um, Spider-Man and Mary Jane, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and sort of the greatest hits of Spider-Man and Mary Jane stories. And, uh, and he's like, oh, this is my favorite. I love Mary Jane. And he just went off on a little soliloquy about Mary Jane, you know, and – and uh, and he signed it. He dedicated it to her. And I, you know, I had their names for each other. It was just a wonderful experience. So, uh, so really, the only autograph I autographs I have one on that book that I had him sign. And then um, when we had our book release party for the Marvel seventy five that Tashin published about four years ago, Stan came to our book release party, and uh, I had him along with Roy Thomas. 
and everybody that worked on the book, uh, we all signed each other's title pages. And so there's um, there's about five all our autographs on that book. Wow. And so that's that's another heirloom. Uh, but that, that that book will take a wheelbarrow to. to <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, if the house is burning down, that book is going to require a second trip, you know, because it's so big and heavy. Um, yeah. I mean, or you could but, use it to actually like break the window or like whatever you need to get out there because it's big enough. Right. Right. <laughs> I do have one other story that I'd love to tell, but I don't. How, I don't know how long you have. Um, maybe we could save it for another day. No, no. I, but, no um, share, share the share the story. Yeah. Okay, it's it's sort of emotional, and uh, and I, it goes back to what I was saying about people who have negative appraisals of Stan, and um, they're out there, and that's fine. And and Stan is again worthy of critique. He's a public figure. He's been a man in, in the public for his whole life, basically. And uh, and I just like the critiques to be honest ones and well founded ones, and and not these superficial hit pieces things and uh, without naming any names or without naming any websites um, it was literally two years ago that I was in the office at Stan's office when I, when I, um, I was going it was the first day I was going to go in on behalf of this project to do some work in his office and uh, I was going to interview Stan I was going to interview all the people in his office I was going to do a deep dive on that and um, and Stan had part of his archives there in the office and I was going to just start exploring the archives and taking photographs, all this stuff. And uh, so I was really psyched, really happy. I was, I was just dancing uh, out of the car and through the garage and towards the elevator. And just right as I was about to get on the elevator, I get these uh, text messages start flooding into my phone. And it's people that have this viral article had started going around. And it was this hit piece on Stan. And, um, like calling his legacy into question and all this blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and I just, my heart sank, uh, because I've heard all this crap before. I I just, I've heard it. I know it is boring, whatever, but everybody, you know, wants their hits and, and here it comes again. Um, so there was a nervous energy in the office that day and I just, uh, you know, but I, I immediately went in and talked with Stan for a couple hours and, you know, at this point, Stan is keeping regular office hours. He's coming in every morning early, and he's leaving after lunch. Um, you know, but he's he's working a full day for a ninety-four-year-old man. That's pretty impressive. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, and he's fully engaged. And I have seen him be fully engaged in what he's working on. He, uh, you know, so we're talking, and then I, you know, I wrap up what. Um, my, my, my work with him and I turn my attention to someone else in the room and start talking to that person and Stan instead of eavesdropping on what we're talking about he turns back to his computer to start you know to do something else with his time and I, I looked over his shoulder as I'm talking to this other person and I see him I see Stan checking his email inbox and he clicks on an email and he blows it up big because he had to magnify things you know the better to see them and I could see exactly what he was clicking on it was a it, it was a link to that very article that had gone viral and um, I knew I had skimmed the article and I knew what was being said and it was all these things that were challenging to him and very superficial mean-spirited and wrong ways 
And I was, my heart sank and I just did not want to be in the room. I felt so uncomfortable and I, I kind of made up an excuse to kind of defer the remainder of my conversation with this other person to excuse myself to go leave. I just had to leave the room. I just didn't want to be there. And, uh, and so, you know, I went about with my work and did other things, but that, that article was viral and it landed so many places and it was the talk of the comics community and it hit, it, it even went beyond the comics community into other places and it made me heart sick. The next day I went in and I went to talk to his partner and, you know, I said, I said, the elephant in the room is this piece. I was like, how is Stan taking it? And he said, to be honest, Stan has gone around to everybody in the office and is more concerned about how we feel than, than how he feels, you know? And, uh, and it, you know, that was, that was Stan. And, uh, that really touched me. Um, and, uh, but it, it, you know, I don't know if it, you know, it, it just, it, but it, it created some hurt among the people that worked with him and certainly with me because it's just, it's just comes and it goes. These types of arguments come and they go. And what bothers me is that it might, it might stick with some people. But the last thing I'd like to say is that by the end of the week, I was, I was in my own little cubicle in the office going through these archives. And um, I got a knock on the door from someone saying, hey, do you, have, do you happen to have a certain type of battery on you? Because we need, we need a battery for one of these cameras we're using. And I said, sure, what do you need it for? It's like, well, we need to operate this camera. We're doing a little shoot with Stan. And so I, I had this battery as it happened. And so I gave it to them. And, and um, so I went out of curiosity and I just sort of eavesdropped and I, I kind of watched. And they were setting up a camera to, to video Stan, who was going through preparations to talk on video to a, a little kid in the hospital who was sick. You know, and this kid's wish was to talk to Stan. And Stan, Stan took the time to prep and get ready and to know what he was going to say. And he talked right into that camera for like, for like five minutes or, or even longer, you know, but it was a substantial message. And I, I, you know, I just know that in that moment, Stan is probably capable of doing more than I'll ever do in a lifetime. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so for people, I just wish people who have this urge to tear down would just for a second reflect on what Stan really means to this world and find the value in that. And, uh, and that there's some little sick kid out there who might even be have passed away by now because their ultimate wish was to get a message of hope from Stan Lee and to just put things in context, please. And it, it might help at least take a little of this grandstanding negativity out of the message of a critique. If, if you follow me on that, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I just feel very strongly about that. And it, being witness to things like that, just, you know, they say don't meet your icons because they will always disappoint you. But I left every meeting with Stan feeling better about him than the one before. And I know I'm not alone. So anyway, there I go again.
That's okay. Thank you so much, John, again, for sh- for sharing all these personal memories. And uh, I know it's obviously hard because it's still raw, but I, I know that everyone appreciates even just hearing about it because it's really something to be able to, again, hear all these amazing stories about this guy who we all grew up with in some way and we connect with. Yes. He's he, he's America's grandfather right now, right? Like, Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think he is. And, and everyone has their own kind of different special relationship with that grandfatherly figure. And it's interesting. Absolutely. I, I read somewhere that he was kind of like if Walt Disney had grown older, that right. it would be the same type of kind of bonding and feeling that everyone kind of had when Walt passed away. And he was obviously much younger. Yes. There's a lot of parallels there. There really are. Yeah. And uh, I think I think if you had – you could have an unending amount of shows just to just to take five minutes from – from people who love Stan to tell you why they love Stan and they would tell you why and they would tell you their stories and you would never run out (laughs) you would never run out of different perspectives for that I I just I just believe that so uh, everybody has their own feelings about him and and because because Stan gave us a universe that was wide open for experience and everybody everybody belongs in, in the Marvel Universe everybody can find a place to belong and it's just a wonderful thing that he gave to us with that. So, as you said, uh, you know, it, it was hope and optimism. It really was. That was the undercurrent. Excellent. Well, again, thank thank you so much. All right. Thank you, man. All right. Take it easy. Take it easy.